So I'm joined by Lucy Adams and Ronnie Hughes to talk about K. And in the book, K is uh, Know Yourself. Lucy Adams was until last year the HR director of the BBC and sat on the executive board and probably was there through some of the most turbulent times in in that organization's history. Uh, The Jimmy Savile affair, the uh, move to Salford, four different director generals during your time there. Just constant turmoil and change. Uh, And left the BBC last year to uh, strike out on her own. Is now the managing director of Firehouse, which is a London-based communications business, and is making a name for herself as a, a great speaker and writer around issues of entrepreneurialism, knowing yourself, mentoring and coaching. It's fantastic to, to have you here, Lucy. Good to be here. Uh, I'm equally delighted to have on the other side of the table, uh, Ronnie Hughes. Uh, Ronnie is an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur, an instigator, a maverick, a troublemaker based in Liverpool, a blogger, an advisor to lots of organisations who want to do good in the world. He's the founder of a company called uh, A Sense of Place. Uh, so he does many fantastic things. And one of the fantastic things he did was to mentor me Uh, when I took over my first uh, CEO role in Liverpool um, in 1997. In fact, one of the chapters begins with a a pithy quote from you, Ronnie. You're very welcome. Thank you, Liam. It's uh, nice to be here checking on you. Yes, great. It's been a few years. So so K is for know yourself. And, uh, you know, in the book, I say that if you want to be successful at anything, particularly if you want to create something yourself, having insight into who you are, what you're like, is really, really important, but also very difficult. Um, um, So uh, when in your career has it been most difficult for you to believe in yourself? Well, shall I kick off? I mean, I obviously being a female, you know, you you discover as you go on that all females are carry with them this sense of, uh, of being an imposter. Uh, and that it's only a matter of time before someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you can't do this There's at all, can you? Exactly. Here. You know, you can't do this at all, can you? So um, and I thought it was just me who lived with that. But actually, as I've you know got older, met more and more women in business, it does tend to be something that females seem to suffer from more than more than the guys. Um, so I, I think generally I have t- carried with me a a, a sense of. Um, needing to continue to bolster my own self-esteem and and have had carried with me a kind of level of self-doubt and and I've always been quite annoyed with myself that when people usually senior male bosses have told me I'm doing a good job that has tended to help me think that I am doing a good job and and that's always irritated me because it just feels sort of slightly weak and lacking in any kind of backbone and spine. Did it take you a long time to sort of admit that to yourself absolutely absolutely and 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 i and i i think you know, again knowing part of knowing yourself and getting stronger with it is just recognizing we've all got these frailties you know it would be wonderful if we were so kind of full of self-esteem and grounded and balanced but the reality is i haven't met any single person including you liam who isn't vaguely steady, dysfunctional steady. <laughs> vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just live with it and yeah. you know we've all got kind of issues and stuff and it's fine it's fine most of us have got doubts most of us you know kind of worry most of us have got fears and it, and and for me kind of growing up has not been to eradicate all that stuff it's just to understand when it's going on and almost taking a little bit step back from yourself and go oh that's quite interesting that you're feeling a bit fearful around this uh, you know, where, where's that coming from and you kind of dig a bit deeper and you realize there's some buttons being pressed that someone somewhere in your past said something that upset you and they're doing you know they're pushing that button and it's kind of okay it's just not debilitating anymore yeah 
I, I first got to know you in your sort of um, exit period from yeah. the BBC. Yeah. And we talked a lot about, you know, you leaving, uh, you know, big business. You've mm. been at the seniorest level in the BBC. And before that, you were at Serco, another huge sort of uh, international um, business. And you were striking out on your own. And I think for a lot of people who, you know, pursue the entrepreneurial journey, say, right, I'm going to follow this. That's a moment of great can be a moment of great crisis and a moment of wow. And all of the buttons yeah. that are there get not only pushed, yeah. they get hit with hammers. That's How so was that true. transition? Well, I spent way too long trying to work out whether I wanted to leave the BBC or not. I mean, I became so tedious. You know, it was the only thing I could think about. It was, I woke up with it every morning. I went to bed with it every night. It was this sense, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And in the end, I thought, right, OK, I, I can't do this to myself anymore. So I'm going to not think about it and I'm going to take a week off. And in that week, by the end of that week, I will have made a decision. So everybody around me breathes a huge sigh of relief because I've been boring the arse off them. So set aside that week in August. And uh, I sat there on that first morning and I wrote down, you know, as we often do, we make a nice list, don't we? You know, all the reasons why I should stay at the BBC and all the reasons why I should leave the BBC. And I looked at this list and all of the reasons why I should stay were fear based. It just leapt out at me. There wasn't anything in there which was about loving what I was doing, desperately wanting to stay and be part. It was all fear of loss of status, fear of loss of income. And I suddenly realised that I had actually been, um, kind of my ego had been boosted by being able to say, I'm head of HR for the BBC. Yeah, it's a pretty cool job. You know, it's kind of like... You were the most interesting person at most dinner parties. You know, apart from when I got into a taxi, when I would say I actually work in personnel in the public service, because you never (laughs) want to admit, because they'd start handing you CDs of them singing that I could take in and give to Bruce Forsyth and stuff. So apart from that, yeah, at dinner parties, well, what it does is being able to say, I am a... And and you kind of, for better or worse, people will have a sense of your status in the hierarchy, whether your relative importance. And of course... What you realise ultimately is that that is meaningless, but it becomes something that you feel your self-worth is inherently linked up to and built, you know, that it is built upon this job title, this status. And I made the decision to leave the BBC that Monday morning, so I had the rest of the week off, which was great, and the decision has been made. <laughs> but it was because it was all fear-driven, and, and that was a that was a terrifying realisation for me that... Actually, I'd been staying probably for the previous two years I'd been staying there because actually I was fearful about what I might be giving up yeah. as I, opposed to what I might be going I to. I think fear holds a lot of people back oh, from completely. following and, what and, they you want know, to do. Making a living, you know, fear of loss of income is kind of genuine fear. You know, yeah. I didn't have a big payout. I didn't have loads of money. I didn't have a trust fund or anything like that, you know, and I'm kind of main breadwinner. So, yeah, they're valid fears, but, but in the end... We'll talk, hopefully yeah. talk about what you come on and do about yeah. that. But but realising that it was fear that was keeping me somewhere where I was actually increasingly very unhappy, yeah. it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Ronnie, the most difficult part of your long and illustrious <laughs> career in entrepreneurship? That was What was the difficult time for you? Well, again, following on from Lucy, it was a little bit about fear. I had worked for... A housing association, Liverpool Housing Trust, for 20 years. It was the love of my life. I never thought I would leave. And, but we'd, me and Sarah, my, my partner, had made up this new idea for a sense of place. And we tried to run it along with our jobs. We both went part-time. 
even though I was a director of the place, they let me go part-time, which was great of them. But there came the day when we realised that for it to get anywhere, we had to leave, we had to actually just jump. And so that moment of jumping was thrilling, but truly terrifying. You know, we had to do it. It was, we are now a sense of place. I can't go around saying I'm the director of this LHT and I run this little thing on the side. This is it now. Um, so I felt very institutionalised, you know, and I had to really get that out of my system. And so the way I did that is I went away to Amsterdam for a week, just to be to take a week out of my life altogether. So there's a theme here, a week. A week. <laughs> yeah. And walked around Amsterdam. It was cold, it was November, there were no tourists there. But I was just able to get used to the fact that I wasn't going into work every day. But when I came back to Liverpool, what had seemed like busy, a sense of place work, because we'd had four days away, week filled up with our jobs suddenly looked awfully like unemployment <laughs> <laughs> self-employment and unemployment yeah. are very very close yeah, to each other. Yeah, they are, aren't they? yeah so that took a while and that was a real a test of our both of our nerves i was glad that we'd both jumped i was glad to have somebody else in the house who was as worried about it as i was but in fact the truth was she probably wasn't as worried yeah. she had great confidence that our idea was an absolute winner she wasn't knocked sideways when she went to the local business link who was supposed to help startups Ooh. to see, see if, they, <laughs> see if they, they, they would give us money for a fax machine. Remember the fax machines? Yes. And uh, they said no because our idea was rubbish and it would never work. No. <laughs> yeah, Where yeah. are you now, business link? <laughs> They've been back twice since to ask to use us as... Um, examples of successful startups and being shown the door very quickly yeah you, you ronnie used to do a um a course for want of a better world called finding the work you love and i know a lot of people queued up to come and walk around the park with you in liverpool and uh, and talk about that what were the questions you asked people to kind of to help them find out what it what would be the work they love we first of all used to start with a bit of archaeology and to find out what work they had already done in their lives that they loved People's instincts aren't usually completely wrong. If they've had any kind of choice about their career, their jobs, you can often see it from the first Saturday job that they pick. So the first question is, what was your first Saturday job? What were the people like with you? What did you do? What did the place smell like? What did it feel like? How was the idea of working for you? Um, then we'll go through and we'll, we'll do their life story. I'll get, I'll get people to tell me their life stories in 10 minutes. Um, oh God, I'd struggle. <laughs> yeah. They're not as old as you are, Lucy. All the people you work yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, they're only just learning to walk. And uh, you, we'd analyse the life story not as a therapeutic thing, but to see see what they'd what they'd really like doing. Um, we'd arrive at all of their skills, and then I'd work with them on what the skills were that they wanted to use, rather than the skills that they have. Lots of people are really good at admin and spend their lives in admin because that's what people tell them they're good at. So what would you like to work on? And then we get to the two absolutely crucial bits of work in this, which is what would you do if you had a year left to live? You had to do some work. You're not actually incapacitated. It's just like in a year's time, your battery's going to go flat. So you've got to work to keep yourself going, but you don't have to do that future work for pensions and all the rest of it that we work for just to keep yourself alive this year. Who will you see? What work will you do? 
Who will you see more of? What will you do less of? That usually narrows things right down there. Sometimes the ask, the answer to the whole thing comes out there. That's a brilliant question, Ronnie. And we that would, is just brilliant. Well, we ask, I ask them that quite deliberately in a graveyard. Oh, do you? Yeah. We go out a for graveyard? a walk and ask, I get them to think about it. We turn into wherever the nearest graveyard is and we sit on a grave and we talk about it. Babies have been born as a result of this conversation, not mine. Um, <laughs> whole careers have been changed. And then we work then on, OK, taking all those skills, what could those jobs be? You might have already thought of it all. Let's give you, you know, a menu of possible jobs that will use those skills. And it's been great. You know, people have... Very early on when I was doing that, there was one guy who went from being a care worker in a sheltered housing scheme to a helicopter instructor. <laughs> and he, it took him seven years, I think, in the end, but he viewed his care worker wages as his funding because helicopters cost a lot. They do. So, and, and do you think that that conversation would change if you had it with the same person every five years, say, or do you think that inherently that it would be the same outcome? I think yes to both. I think it will it will change. I think what you love to do changes. Mm. Um, but what always... I think what would stay the same is that the things that people throw out of their lives at that point are probably the same. We all have a tendency to fill ourselves up with deeply worthy stuff that we don't really like doing or stuff that we feel obliged to do because we're around. Yeah. And they're the things that go, the obligations, the worthiness... As well as the, you know, you know the... Anything the, with the word should in it. Yeah, anything with should in or any of those friends, like you say in the book, you know, the people who drain you, you yeah. know, they, they've got to go. If you've got, really think you've got 365 days to go, and that's how I'm living my own life now. I, I did that for years. Had this question in the graveyard for years before I asked it of myself. And then I did the, did the, the, um, did the course for the last time. I've stopped doing it as such now because I don't really want to lead people into careers anymore. Mm. I think it's more intelligent than that. So I use a lot of bits of it. But the last time, somebody actually sat in the graveyard with me and said, what about you? <laughs> and she turned out to be, you know, a bit of a mentor, really. And, and so that changed, that changed my own life. OK. Um, what was your first Saturday job? I worked in Lennon's in McGall in North Liverpool. Um, it, was, it was a supermarket filling up shelves and getting on with people and it was it was fantastic i just loved it i, I loved the i loved the trading I, we got really involved in how much are we making we were we weren't of course making it i think the the money was just changing to the new money and we were on 19 pence an hour <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't about the money but it was really interesting and we'd we'd have good great jokes you know we'd um we me and a couple of the other lads, we'd start shortages in our area of Liverpool. We'd say there wasn't going to be... The best one we did was the toilet roll shortage. <laughs> a great toilet roll shortage yeah. of 1971. Yeah. Just, oh, we get some of these. We don't know when the next delivery is. Brilliant. And uh, Yeah, so so loved that. And I carried on doing that when I actually started a full-time job. I loved it so much. OK. Lucy, what was your first Saturday? Working in Wimpy. Um, and I got fired because I kept forgetting to give people cutlery. So, <laughs> you see, now no one has cutlery. I was ahead of my time. You were. Yeah, you were, yeah, yeah. burger bars, it's Sometimes all... innovators are not recognised at the time. <laughs> exactly. It was just too early. 
<laughs> what about you? My first job was as a Saturday boy in Baxter's Butchers on Smelly Lovely. Alley in Reading, and I bloody loved it. Lovely. I started Smelly by Smelly Alley. Yeah, it was Union Street, but it was known as Smelly Alley because it was full of butchers and <laughs> fishmongers and all of that. Quite a dodgy little street. But I was taken on to clean out the fridges, so I'd be up to my armpits in ox blood and you know bits of dead animal. But when they let me onto the um, the counter to start selling stuff, yeah. loved it. Absolutely, yeah, uh, loved it. And I've loved talking to you too about uh, knowing yourself. So thank you very much. Oh, pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from the series The Social Entrepreneurs A to Z, hosted by Liam Black and produced by Pioneers Post. To order your copy of the book and for more information, visit pioneerspost.com or subscribe on iTunes.